we're going to read Psalm 110, and we always stand up just as a, a bodily practice of demonstrating that this is God's word, and it's to be honored as God's word. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated. Uh, Let's pray. Father, um, show us your son today. Show us his characteristics, his attributes, what he's like, what he always will be like. Show us yourself. Show us your glory in his face. And Lord, I just pray for each and every one of us that our faith uh, would grow and would be strengthened by your words and that we would be able to see Jesus more clearly uh, than we saw him before. And that as a result, Father, we would just offer to you love and worship and singing and praying and fellowshipping with one another and that you would be pleased with us. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his death and his resurrection on our behalf. Thank you for reconciling us to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a kind of introduction, um, I want to talk about the author and kind of the goal of the sermon, which hopefully is the goal of the text. That's, that's what I'm hoping. So the author of this sermon seems pretty apparent. It starts off with the superscription, which is actually in the original text. So this is scripture, a psalm of David, a psalm of David. And so this is likely David's psalm. He wrote it. Now, there are a lot of um, scholars, commentators, teachers, pastors, all different people that I've been interacting with uh, throughout the last month. And there is a kind of difference of opinion. Some will say that this is actually not a psalm by David, but a psalm about David and they look at it and they say, well, you see, it's clearly not written by David because it's about him. They take the Lord says to my Lord, they take that second Lord to be David himself. And so they think a court official of some kind wrote the psalm about David. Uh, well, two problems with that. First, a psalm of David is used all throughout the psalms and normatively is a psalm written by David. So an example of this would be Psalm 51 which goes into details that are personal to David during the the time when he sinned against Bathsheba and and killed her husband Uriah and all those nasty things that he did. He writes this Psalm 51 in repentance of that deed. And so it's very clear that it's at least uh, written by David. But a second and more important proof for the authorship of this psalm comes from Jesus himself. In Matthew 22, verse 44, he says this, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord. And then right after that, he quotes Psalm 110.1. And so Jesus says, it's David who wrote the psalm. And not only that, he wrote it in the spirit, meaning it's God who wrote the psalm through David, right? And so it's authoritative for us. So the goal of this sermon is, I hope, the goal of this psalm. 
to see a greater picture of Yahweh and Jesus. That we may trust in Jesus the same way that David here trusts in Jesus. That we may call Jesus our Lord as David here calls Jesus his Lord. So what kind of faith is this? Well, just going all of the situations in life seem to say the opposite. The many bears and lions and giants that came uh, in David's life. It's a faith that leads us to a deep-rooted repentance And it's a faith that's not abandoned when we find ourselves in the cesspool of sin. Like he found himself with his adultery uh, against Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. It's a faith that seems or sees that our only hope is not in our works, but rather in the grace and forgiveness of God. David writes this in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's a faith that uh, believes in the resurrection of the Messiah, as David writes in Psalm 16, verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The early church used that psalm to preach the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Peter used it as early as Acts 2, right after Pentecost. It's also a faith, as we've already said, that confesses that Jesus is Lord, as David writes about this person in Psalm 110. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. This is the faith that we are aiming at. The goal of this sermon is to strengthen our faith in Jesus and who he is. So before we actually um, jump into the psalm specifically, I want to give some structure points of it. And this, this might be a lot. There's, there's four kinds of ways to, to divide up this psalm. All right, the first one is verse 1 and verse 4. So there's two parts. Verse 1 starts off the first part, and it says, The Lord, has, uh, the Lord says, right? And then verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn. Now, quick tip, when you see L-O-R-D in all caps, in your Bibles, it's always Yahweh. So it's Yahweh says to Adonai. That's what it's saying here. The Lord, all caps, says to the Lord, not all caps. And so the two parts would be those two sections. A second way to develop, to divide it up is kind of grammatically. There's a second person, the use of the second person, and then there's the use of the third person. Verses 1 through 4 uses second person when Yahweh speaks. He says, you sit, your mighty scepter, you rule, your people, your power, so on, so on. Verses 5 through 7 switches to the third person. He is at your right hand. He will shatter. He will execute judgments, and so on and so on. Another way of breaking up is into two parts. Verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 7. This way it sees Yahweh speaking, and then it ends with Yahweh swearing, And then it goes on to describe those things actually happening. And so the two lords of verse 1 and 4 are actually seen as what scholarly people say is an inclusio. It just means it's a bookend. It uses similar concepts to bookend the section that comes between it. So verses 1 through 4 belong, and then verses 5 through 7. A fourth and final way. This is a lot, I'm sorry. But this is the way that we're going to unfold the sermon, is by this fourth way. And this is thematically. 
the psalm is divided up thematically. Verses 1 through 2 focus on the kingliness of Christ. Verses 3 through 4 focus on the priestliness of Christ. And verses 5 through 7 focus on the judgment of Christ. And so Christ is being seen here as king, priest, and judge. And so let's hop in uh, to the text itself. Uh, Our first point is going to come from the uh, overall structure of Psalms, and you can throw it up there. We can trust God because he is faithful and always keeps his word. Now this is not strictly speaking in the text. It's strictly speaking in the structure overall of the book of Psalms and how our text today fits within the structure of the book of Psalms as a whole. All right, and so we're going to, it's a Psalm of David. And so go ahead and throw up the next um, slide. This is how the book of Psalms is divided as a whole. There's five books within the books of Psalms, and you can kind of see them there. 1 through 41, 42 through 72, 73 through 89, 90 through 106, 107 through 150. And then in those books, there's Davidic Psalms that claim to be authored by David. And you can kind of see a trend. It starts off with almost nearly all of There's still a good portion of Davidic Psalms. There's 18 attributed to them. And book four continues that shocking trend with there being only two. And then all of a sudden, when you get to the last book of Psalms, David comes back. It's like, oh, there he is again. We almost forgot about you. And so our, our point from uh, that God is trustworthy and he's faithful, and that we can trust him, this comes from this structure. So in book three, where David drops off the face, face of the map, It ends with Psalm 89, and it is one of the most terrifying psalms in all of the Bible, if you're reading it properly. It's one of the most terrifying psalms for the people of God. Probably more terrifying for the Old Testament people of God than the New Testament, because we know we see the end. But the Bible, the meta-narrative of Scripture, starts off with the fall, right, in Genesis 3. And Eve is given a promise in the midst of the curse of the serpent. The offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head. Right, One of the sons or daughters of Eve will defeat Satan. That then is passed on in Genesis 12 to Abraham, and it says one of your offspring right, will reverse the curse. All, anybody who blesses your offspring will be blessed, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what, how Genesis 12, 4 reads. And then you just continue that trajectory, and it's passed on through the generations, and eventually you come to a new trajectory of David in 2 Samuel 7. And David is given the same Abrahamic promise, but this time it's more particular. You'll have a son that sits on the throne and rules God's people forever. And so that's what we're looking at. And then all of a sudden, as we're going through the history of the Psalms, and you get to book three, Psalm 89, it's as if God is actually going to reject and throw away his promise that he made to David, which for us, we should be reading that as the promise of the coming of the Messiah. God is threatening to abandon the promise of the coming of Jesus. Listen to these. These are uh, verse 38 through 39 from Psalm 89. But now you, talking about Yahweh, have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed, which is uh, Mashiach in Hebrew, so Messiah. You have renounced your covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. It it ends in verse 49 through 52. I'm just going to read verse 49 with this question that should just, it haunts the people of God at this point. Lord, 
Where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where's it at? It seems like it's gone. And it continues through book four. David's presence is nowhere to be seen, or very, very few and far between. And then we get all of a sudden into book five, and in particular, a group of Psalms. Psalms 107 through 118. Sorry, 118. Psalms 107 through 118. And commentator Michael Sneerly writes of this section in book five. He says, he calls these the David is back Psalms. David is back. And in this group of Psalms, our text today, Psalm 110, is the clearest answer to this question Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Our psalm today answers this question more powerfully and more clearly than any other psalm in all the Bible. And it says this. It's as if God himself answers this question saying, Where is my steadfast love of old, which by my faithfulness I swore to David? He is right here. And he's come. It is back, Remedy. And that's what our psalm is all about. It is about the Messiah that comes through David. Or as David says, David's Lord. And so let's dive into the actual psalm itself. Our first point comes from verse, or second point, comes from verses 1 through 2. David's Lord is a king like no other, having the authority and power of God himself. So David's Lord, he's a king. He has the authority and power that belong only to God. David writes in the spirit uh, in verses 1 through 2 about someone other than himself. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. End quote. So just a few seconds ago, I said this was the clearest psalm or clearest answer, right? To the, where's the faithfulness of God? The clearest answer in all of the Bible. And I actually base that on how the New Testament writers use this psalm. And so just Psalm 110 verse 1 alone is the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. To just the first verse of Rapid Fire Machine Gun, just all these references that allude to just the first verse of our psalm. Matthew 22, 44. Matthew 26, 64. Mark 12, 36. Mark 14, 62. Luke 20, 42 through uh, 43. Luke 22, 69. Acts 2. Acts 5. Acts 7. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 7, <laughs> Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12. Hebrews really likes this psalm. In uh, 1 Peter 3, all directly quote or allude to Psalm 110, 1. And then verse 4, Hebrews alludes to that and quotes that another like five or six times. In fact, you can almost read Hebrews as like a sermon expositing Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 110.4. It's, it's so repeated as an idea throughout um, the book of Hebrews. And what they zone in on in verse 1 is this right here. Yahweh saying to lowercase Lord, sit at my right hand. They zoom in on this idea of Jesus being at the right hand of God. So in our psalm, the, the verb sit is an imperative mood, which just means it's like command. It's so strong, and I think David uses this language to convey that this isn't just something God's like saying. He's like saying, this is going to happen. 
sit at my right hand. It's sure. Just like when God speaks in creation and he says, let there be light. And then what happens? Light comes immediately. He is saying, sit at my right hand. And then what happens? Verse five, he is at my right hand. So this is sure. It's faithful. And that's what's being communicated in this verb of sit, uh, the certainty of God here. And so how do these verses show us, as our point says, the, the power and the authority of King Jesus? So firstly, the right hand of God. What does that mean? It's used often throughout Scripture, particularly in the Psalms and also in the prophets. And usually it's used of God's saving power for his people. God's saving power for his people. I'll give a couple examples. Isaiah 41.10, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 60 verse 5, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. And so the right hand is seen as God's power and his authority, but in particular to save, right? And so we see that God also, this right hand is described by Jesus in Mark 14 verse 62. He calls it the right hand of power. And so being at God's right hand, it's, it's, often, it's supposed to put immediately into our heads this idea of power, reigning, and authority over all things. The, the most powerful spot in all the universe. We keep getting this idea of power and authority as you continue. I will make your enemies your footstool. And so this is our next kind of idea of power and authority. Footstool, in Hebrew, it's two words. It, it means there's stool, which also can mean footstool, because it usually is used for foot. And there's with feet. And so feet is actually kind of twice. It's like foot footstool. Um, and it's to give this indication that what you put your feet on, right, you have your authority over it, uh, so to speak. And this is an idiom that comes, first of all, it's all over in the in a- ancient Near Middle Eastern kind of context and cultures. But it's also all throughout Old Testament scripture as well. So Joshua 10 24 would be an example. Joshua summoned all the men of Israel, and he said to the story behind this is kind of a side note, cool um, aspect as well. There's five kings that they just went to battle with, and they defeated them and killed them. Joshua then commands them to be hung on trees. Afterwards, he takes them off of the trees, throws them into caves, and rolls over a big rock over their graves. And then, in this context, takes it out, takes the rock off, and commands all of Israel to put their feet on their necks, demonstrating death, uh, humiliation, and we have authority clearly over you. Never, you're never going to rise again. And we find the same Im- imagery, obviously. I mean, you can't think of that without immediately going to the resurrection of Christ. Jesus, who is hung on the tree and put in a cave with a stone rolled over it, But when the stone rolls away, Jesus is alive forevermore. Satan's not there to put his feet on his neck, but Jesus is actually putting his feet on Satan's neck forevermore with an indestructible life in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, We see this as well in 1 Kings 5, which I think um, is an allusion to Psalm 110 or vice versa. I think one of them had this in mind. 1 Kings 5, 3. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. 
And so this is talking about David wasn't able to build a temple, wasn't able to bring rest to Israel because there was constant wars going on until God put all of his enemies under his feet. And then in the reign of Solomon, we see that peace. He builds a house for the Lord, right? And then there's seemingly peace until, of course, he uh, disobeys God. But that, that imagery is what we have here, except for it's extended to the future when the Messiah comes back and all of the enemies are put under his feet. And then there's a peace that extends throughout the world and it'll never fall away like this peace in 1 Kings 5. And so we see the power and we see the authority of um, this king in this text. So let's look at our third point. This also comes from, this comes from verses 3 through 4. David's Lord is a priest like no other. He's unchangeable and indestructible forever. Verses 3 through 4. David continues in the spirit, writing in verses 3 through 4, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek, end quote. So verse 2 and verse 1 focused on your enemies, right? It was the Lord's going to sit at the right hand of Yahweh and your enemies will be brought into subjection. Verse 3 focuses on your people, your people. So we're no longer talking about this king's enemies. We're talking about this king's people. And it says your people will offer themselves freely, and there's priestly language being used. So we're now starting to exit out of king. There's still kingship here, but we're now going into kind of the realm of priestliness. And so the first kind of priestly language of your people is that first phrase, they will offer themselves freely. This is, in the Hebrew, the word for free will offering. And so when you go and you see the different distinctions of the different kinds of offerings that people could offer, Leviticus 22, 17 through 23 says this, Um, You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or or too short for a freewill offering, but for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted, right? And so in that context, they're distinguishing between two kinds of offerings. The vow offering has to be perfect, spotless, nothing wrong with it. The freewill offering, it can have a little bit wrong with it, but it still should be relatively perfect and spotless. And so God's people here in this psalm are being called freewill offerings, And so that that should tell us those who have Jesus for their Lord offer themselves freely to the service of God. Quite literally as sacrifices, as living sacrifices. So just in case we didn't get it from the the title, free will offering in the Old Testament meant it wasn't compelled upon anyone. You never had to do it a single time in your entire life. But if God moved your heart and you just said, I want to offer something to the Lord, you would go to the temple and you would make a free will offering. It wasn't required. It was something that describes the people bringing supplies for the building of the tabernacle, that they brought it of their own free volition. And so this, uh, this priestly group will offer themselves in the service of the Lord of their own volition. Uh, the second thing that describes this group, your people, is they're in holy garments. The phrase quite literally reads, in the splendor or attire of holiness. Um, commentator, Old Testament commentator Kiel um, and Delich, they say this about this. The holy attire is the vestment of the priest 
for performing divine services here. So it's the, the vestments, it's the robes that the priests, the Levitical priests would wear when they would offer things to the Lord at the temple. But then he makes this distinction. Here, however, the people without distinction wear the holy festive garments. It's not just the priests wearing the priestly garments. It's all of those who are the Lord's people now wearing the priestly garments. So not only are they sacrifices according to their own free will, they're also priests who offer the sacrifices. Not all is priestly here. That word day of your power in the same verse, verse 3, harkens back to this kingliness. It means quite literally day of your armies. And so these priestly group that's offering themselves uh, freely to the Lord, they're also an army. They're quite literally a multitude who's standing behind their king, Jesus, who's also going to be later called a priest. We get this language elsewhere in the Bible. Revelation 19, verse 14, when describing Jesus coming, he appears on a white horse, and then afterwards it says this, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And so that same picture here is being said in Revelation, that Jesus is coming back as the priest king, and he's going into battle, and behind him are a priestly army following him, like, likely free will offering. They're giving themselves to him wholly by their own volition. So verse 4, it turns from describing your people as priests to the priest himself. The priestly king says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is returning to the pattern of verse 1. David starts off with Yahweh saying something to Adonai. Priest is swearing something to Adonai. And what is he swearing? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our Melchizedekian, say that five times fast, priest. And this fact is unchangeable. So I told you how Hebrews really loves Psalm 110. Uh, so we're going to use Hebrews. They're going to make some interpretations from this psalm to like describe Jesus, the Melchizedekian priest. This is Hebrews six seventeen through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek, of Abraham. And then he's talking about this oath made to David, David's Lord, that he'll be a, or, a priest forever. He takes those two things and puts them together and says, God swore on both things. And that means that the character of these promises are unchangeable because God cannot lie. He always keeps his word. And so he, Hebrews continues to make a very interesting observation about the word forever, which is just amazing. Uh, Hebrews seven fifteen through 16 says this, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but what was his basis? But by the power of an indestructible life. An indestructible life. So when we read forever, you're a priest forever, right, quite literally, David is prophesying about the resurrection of Christ to indestructible life. And that's why he is a priest forever. That's the basis here. Not his descendants from other priests, but rather by the power of an indestructible life. Um, As a side note, I'm not going to cover this, but if you want more information on Melchizedek, you should read Hebrews 5 through 9, at least. Maybe all of Hebrews. And you should read Genesis 14, 17 through 24, which is the original story of Melchizedek. Um, So to recap so far in our psalm, Uh, David's Lord has ascended to the right hand of God in the heavens. He's become a high priest of a different order. And what sacrifice does he offer? That would be the question I would ask. He's a priest. What what sacrifice does he offer? Hebrews covers us also in the context of Psalm 110. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Be seated at my right hand. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to offer, or then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So there's a sacrifice. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because he just did that, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Christ is our indestructible, unchangeable priest. And just like Hebrews now shifts to the second coming of Christ, Our psalm does the very same thing. So let's look at verses 5 through 7. And this is our fourth point. David's Lord is the judge of all the nations and the bringer of God's wrath. He's the judge of all the nations and the bringer of God's wrath. David continues writing in the Spirit, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So there's a a shift. We mentioned this already from second person into third person. You, 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 your, to he, 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 he. And commentators are, some say that it's, Yahweh, who's now being described as being on the right hand of Adonai, the king, the priest king that we've been talking about. Others say, no, no, no. It's, it's still the same Adonai, and he's now being described as being at the right hand of Yahweh. Now, there, there's reasons for this. Linguistically, it reads as if Yahweh now is at the right hand of Adonai. So that's why they're confused about it. But idea-wise, it seems inconceivable because we don't see it anywhere else in Scripture where God the Father is described as being at the right hand of God the Son. So we don't see that. So I end up taking the route that this is talking about David's Lord being at the right hand of Yahweh. But I also want to note 
that the author is intentionally being ambiguous. He's, he's intentionally being ambiguous with his language. One commentator who took the opposite view of me, I just want to read it. Um, this is from Carson and B. Let me find it. And in Psalm 110, verse 5, Yahweh is said to be at the king's right hand rather than vice versa, as if God and the king were interchangeable. Finally, this king will do what God alone is described elsewhere as doing, judging the nations and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Even though I disagree with his premise that it's Yahweh at the right hand of the king, what he says is absolutely true. It's as if the writer himself is being ambiguous because he wants you to see that Yahweh and Adonai are interchangeable. They share the same characteristics and they do the same things that are only attributed to God elsewhere in Scripture. And there's, there's a reason for that, and we'll get to that in our fifth point. But for now, we'll just leave it there. Um, so it's being ambiguical, uh, yeah, ambiguous. So let's look at this verse. What is it saying for us? He is going to shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. What's interesting about the grammar of that sentence is kings is put as the very last word. And he, or the Lord, is put as the very first word. And so grammatically, David is quite literally saying, who are these kings? These are kings that are as far away as possible as you can possibly be to submitting to the lordship of the king. That's who these kings are. And so what is David's lord doing? He's shattering kings who are in utter rebellion against him and when will he shatter him in the day of his wrath and this is this is really fun the word for wrath and anger in hebrew is nose so it literally reads when will he shatter them in the day of his nose and we're all like what is going on here uh and he in kind of jewish culture is a hebrew idiom when you were about to like get really anger and boil over the last kind of thing that happens before you actuate your wrath and you punch said person in the face was your nostrils flared up. And that's when you knew the wrath is coming. It's no longer waiting, it's coming. And so the, the um, phrase that's described of God all throughout the Bible, through the Psalms, and it starts all the way back at Exodus when he reveals himself to Moses through the, the burning bush, the phrase that he is slow to anger, it literally means he has a long nose. And the idea there is that when God is angry over sin, it builds up, it builds up, it builds up, but his, lo- his nose is so long that it takes a really long time for him to actuate it because he's super patient and he's super wearing, he's bearing with you as long as anyone can possibly do. Well, at this point, we have arrived at the end of God's nose. He is angry now and he actuates his anger and it demonstrates itself through the shattering of these kings and all who are in rebellion with them. And as he's describing the nations, we get this phrase, filling them with corpses. And it's a, it's a dreadful description of the wrath of God. And this is used throughout the Bible. Um, it's used of the fall of Babylon in Revelation 19. Uh, Babylon is broken and destroyed and its streets are filled with corpses. But it's also a description that Isaiah uses as his very last verse in all of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66. In the context of Isaiah 66, right before this last verse, it describes God making the new heavens and the new earth. 
So it's quite literally, this is the final judgment of God being described. And Isaiah ends his long um, book with this. Um, And they shall go out and look, talking about the people of God, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, talking about Yahweh. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And so this is quite literally the second coming, the final judgment of Christ being described to us by David. And then we get verse 7, which just seems strange. Like when you look at what, you look at kind of how it's flowing, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and he'll stop by the brook and take a drink and lift up his head. It just seems like strange why it's there. And I think it's intentional that it's supposed to be kind of set apart from the rest of the psalm. It's almost, the, the imagery is of like this king with his army is battling. He subjugates all the earth to his rule and reign. And then afterwards, he goes by the river to get a drink, to recap his strength, and to rest. And it's just this restful image of the post battle. And one might even say this is the day seven of the new creation. Right? God created the world in six days, and then on day seven, which it sets it sets itself apart, he rests. And here David's Lord rests after carrying out the final judgment of God in the new creation in the new earth. In the Lord's rest, all of creation, the new creation, finds its rest forevermore. No more uh, enemies of God to shatter, just the priestly people described in verse 3 as your people, God's people. So kind of in, the, in all of the psalm, there are two avenues, two paths that are presented to us. There's your enemies and your people. Got, you have to be a part of one. You're either God's people or God's enemies. And this is a very psalm-like thing to do. Psalms 1 begins the same way. It, it distinguishes between the wicked and the righteous. Psalm 2 continues to do that same kind of thing. In fact, Psalm 2, I didn't say this first service, but I think this is worth saying. Uh, psalm, uh, psalm 2 is so tied to Psalm 110 that some people, for instance, Reich Watts, says Psalm 110 is the new interpretation of Psalm 2. So G.K. Beale says it this way. He, he notes the linguistic or the lexical parallels between the two. Uh, Lord, 110.1, and chapter, uh, Psalm 2, 2, and 4, 7, and 11. The idea of sitting and dwelling, verses 1 through 2, and Psalm 2, 2. Scepter, verse 2, and Psalm 2, 9. Zion, verse 2, Psalm 2, 6. Shattering, verses 5 through 6. Psalm 2.9, judge, verse 6, and Psalm 2.10, and also nations, verse 6, and Psalm 2.1. So there's so many linguistic parallels, and Psalm 2 actually says it this way in verses 7 through 12. It sounds very similar. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
And so our psalm shares that same sentiment. Kiss the son, kiss the priest king, lest he be angry. So let's look at our fifth, and this is our final point. And this one, I think Jesus makes this point of Psalm 110, so I feel really confident about it. Um, so verses 1 through 7, the whole psalm, but it also comes from Matthew 22, 41 through 46. David's Lord is the only son of God. David's Lord is the only son of God. So we, get, we got all those things, uh, king, priest, and uh, judge. We got all that from the text. Jesus reads Psalm 110 and gets something else also from the text. Sadducees are coming to Jesus in rapid-fire fashion, and they're trying to catch him with words and questions that they, they know are stupid questions. They're just trying to trap him and show, you're not really a good teacher. And finally, at the end of this happening like three or four times in a row, Jesus turns to them, and he's like, I want to ask you a question. And that's where our text takes place. So Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions, which is the sign of a master teacher when you ask a question that stops your students from ever talking to you again. <laughs> um, so Jesus shuts the mouths of all of his opponents with a simple question. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, at first, but every Jew worth his salt who reads the Old Testament knew that the Messiah is coming from David. And so Jesus is not denying that. Jesus himself, right, we, when you trace those same stories that we were talking about earlier, uh, Eve to Abraham, Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to Perez, eventually to Boaz and Ruth, eventually to Obed, eventually to David, and then keep going, you get to Jesus claiming to be born from a woman, son of Abraham, son of David, right? So Jesus is not making that denial that he's a son of David, but what he's saying is, he's asking something beyond. Who, who else, right? Whose else son is this David's Lord? Is he just David's son? If so, then why does David call him Lord? The question is designed to get the Pharisees and us as readers off of Jesus' genealogy according to the flesh and to something beyond that, some other origin of Jesus Christ. Whose son is he? asks Jesus, to which we must respond, he's David's son, according to the flesh, but he is God overall, blessed forever. Paul says it that way in Romans 9, 5. To them, talking about the Jews, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. But then he follows that up. Who is God over all, blessed forever? Amen. And that's what Paul says. And so that's what Jesus is wanting us to see, that he is not just the son of David, but he's the only son of God. So let me end this sermon with my own kind of question, not designed to shut you up for the rest of your lives and never respond to me again, uh, but a question that's important. And from the text, is David's Lord your Lord? That's the question. Is the Lord 
who David says, my Lord, do we also confess with our mouth of Jesus, my Lord. Is David's Lord your Lord? So there's a call to trust him. And we get characteristics along this psalm that should fill us with trust, trustworthiness, right? Worthy of our trust. He's the king and he has all power and authority. You can trust him. He's the forever indestructible priest who's reconciled you to God and has forgiven your sins. You can trust him. He's the judge who comes back to cleanse the world of all evil and to wipe away the tears of his people. You can trust him. And finally, he's the son of God and he shares his sonship with all who trust him. We are called sons and daughters of God because Jesus himself is the son of God and he shares his relationship with his father with us. We can trust him. So let me declare this, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which is what David did, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for showing us your character and the character of your son. And thank you for showing us the relationship that you have with your son. Lord, these are, these are pearls of glory, worth selling everything that we have to obtain. So I pray that you would well up within our hearts, Lord, such a faith, a trust, a, a joy, and a hope that we can worship you today because of Jesus Christ, what he's done. He's our king, he's our priest, he's our judge, he's your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.